0: most of them did not die rich and a lot of them died they died really difficult deaths but yet they were passionate till the end and
1: i love that this is not what you think i'm Sasha rosen we're going to be talking a bit about somali pirates golden age pirates Golden Age pirates were from piracy's third wave, the early 1700s. They were, as Marcus Rediker describes them, purveyors of terror who are remembered as culture heroes or anti-heroes, much like equally terror-purveying governments that they plundered. They were also democratic, interested in equality, and entrepreneurs. And it's those last things that really grab Kira Mayer Phillips. She's written a book about them with co-author Alexa Clay, The Misfit Economy. It's new. You can get it now. Kira is joining me from Miami. She has just finished her book tour, so there might be a little in the way of background noise and family life?
0: Yeah, my son is surprisingly sleeping right now, but he might well wake up very soon at any moment, so there definitely might be some background noise around here.
1: I actually wanted to start with a question from a 10-year-old. We asked for some questions about pirates. He's interested in pirates. His name's Fernando. He's 10. He's kind of awesome. He asks the following question. Is a pirate a pirate because he grew up in a family of pirates or because he did pirate things?
0: (laughs) That's great. I haven't found a case where a pirate is a pirate because he grew up in a family of pirates. I haven't found a pirate who fell into piracy, kind of like how you fall into crime, but I think it's the latter because he did pirate things. So initially, this is a great question because it really forces you to answer it by going into the history of piracy. The first wave of grabbing the cargo of a ship and stealing it was from the buccaneers who were legalized pirates. You had the colonial wars and and you had the governments, uh, the the crowns UK and Spain telling their buccaneers to say to grab cargo from you know Spanish ship and and steal it and then that's legalized and and the crown would take a percentage of of what that buccaneer would take from that day.
1: And this is because Britain and and Spain are at war with each other and trying to to mess with each other.
0: Exactly. So that was legalized. They had certificates when they were allowed to do that. And those ships ran democratically as well. But then what happened was is that the colonial wars finished and buccaneers didn't want to go back to being sailors on merchant ships which were not democratic at all and very very difficult and they definitely weren't making as much money as they were as buccaneers. So what they did was they took the same practice. They just did it illegally.
1: Life on these merchant ships were pretty grim. I mean, kind of said it's yeah. not as nice. we describe it as brutality, almost war crimes.
0: Absolutely. Because the merchant ship was owned by a land-based investor, he needed to hire a captain who had all of his interests at heart and could manage the operation on his own. So the captain had a lot of power, and particularly power to abuse sailors physically. And if you look at the records, you can see that power was used disturbingly often. The pirates definitely didn't own any of the spoils of the operation, couldn't vote on anything. There was no constitution or anything like that. Food was really bad, which actually is very important when you consider the fact that they have to be out at sea for so long. The conditions are very bad and the pay was appalling. It's very understandable, I think, when you see what life can be and that you can have a vote and you can sign a constitution that ensures that you have an equal voice. The pay structure was relatively flat, as in the highest difference between the highest paid officer and the lowest paid officer was one share. And also pay was dependent on what you caught. And sometimes they caught a lot, a lot of gold and a lot, a lot of cargo that was, as I just said, distributed relatively fairly and equally. And they do have this reputation of being party animals and lovers of life. And certainly Bartholomew Roberts, who was the most successful pirate of all time, alluded to this often. And a lot of the literature about it alludes to the fact that that was true, that they had a lot of fun, even though there were lots of challenges and a lot of them died and most of them didn't die rich.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've read about one pirate who managed to retire, although it sounds like he didn't get to keep his money very long after his retirement. Yeah.
0: So the ones who did well are the ones who went back to the formal economy. Captain Morgan became the governor of Jamaica, you know, so, but most of them did not die rich and a lot of them died and they died really difficult deaths, but yet they were passionate till the end. And I love that.
1: And they were young. These guys were 27 years old on average.
0: Absolutely. And most of them actually recruited for merchant ships. So when pirates attacked a merchant ship, the first thing that would happen, that would be that the quartermaster would get on that merchant ship and would ask them, does your captain treat you well? And he would ask them, who wants to join us? And Bartholomew Roberts, for example, was captured in that way and, and recruited in that way and worked his way up to become one of the most successful pirate captains of all time.
1: One of the really interesting things about how pirates organized themselves and their ships was the fact that they kind of had two bosses.
0: Absolutely. So they created the office of the quartermaster, whose job was to distribute the plunder to enact punishment, to deal with disputes as well, to make sure that the operation was running smoothly, to ensure a separation of power between high officers. If there were disputes then he would try to resolve them. He would be the one to board a merchant vessel when it was captured and recruit pirates and ask the sailors whether the captain of that ship treated them well, which meant that that was dependent on how the pirates would treat that captain, which to me shows that this wasn't just a business so they actually believed in a superior culture. They thought if you don't treat them right then we're going to treat you badly but if you're a good captain and there's a very famous case of this then we will take their things and go away. They weren't interested in killing or injuring their own pirates for no good reason. The decision making process was something called the common council and that included every single pirate on the ship from the highest paid to the lowest paid. The captain could not make a decision if it wasn't voted on by the common council and actually merchants ship captains were captured by pirates and survived to tell the tale and wrote about it, said that that drove them crazy, that the pirates debated everything. However, and this was also to their credit, the captain had total power in the midst of battle. It didn't slow them down. This democracy didn't slow them down. But that was tempered by the fact that if the captain made bad decisions, he could be deposed at any moment by the common
1: council. That wasn't a very happy retirement for the captain in most cases.
0: No, and that's certainly happened. So the the person who became the captain would be the quartermaster if the captain would
1: be deposed. Despite their reputation these days, it sounds like they had a really strong interest in fairness. Like, fairness was a big thing.
0: Huge. Absolutely. To the point where the captain couldn't wear clothes that looked nicer than the other pirates. Bartholomew Roberts, I think, had his own room. But most captains slept in the same room as everybody else. There is one case where a few pirates were found wearing jewelry and clothes that they had captured. And they were severely punished for that. So even just in the most basic sense, everything had to be just completely there.
1: But I thought Roberts was saying one of the most successful pirate captains, and he was a pretty rapid rising recruit when he was taken off a merchant ship, and he did not retire. What happened between those two moments?
0: Look, he just captured just the most incredible ships in his lifetime. So about four hundred and seventy, which is a huge amount, considering that the Golden Age of piracy lasted about eight years. He was just a really successful entrepreneur. He knew how to run his ship. People trusted him. People believed in him. There was one particular incident of a ship called the Sagrada Familia, which was two massive ships that were returning from Brazil to Portugal with a lot of gold. And they were outnumbered. It's just a beautiful story about what happens when the smaller and leaner actor defeats the bigger one. And that happened over and over and over again.
1: There was brutality mixed in with all of this uh, this democratic organization as well.
0: It was dark amongst themselves. Historians have said that they failed to find an instance when one pirate killed another in order to enlarge in the pot of money that would come because it was distributed fairly equally. However, a lot of pirates died. They drank a lot and often found themselves in places where they had no idea where they were and died at sea. So it was definitely a dark period, and and they were doing dark things, and they were hurting people as well, um, unnecessarily often, and there's no moving away from that fact. However, a point that I do have to make about this, and certainly related to Blackbeard, is that they knew how to act the part of the dark, scary pirate because they needed to, because it was a wise business decision. So they talked about Blackbeard as being the scariest person around because he acted that way. But in reality, he never killed anyone because he didn't have to. And they were actually master PR people. They liked it when people wrote about them as scary, scary people. Blackbeard, for instance, was able to kind of live in this alternative reality Of this monster because the merchant ships and the navy ships instantly put down their guard and they're like you got us right so they took a lot without a fight because of their ability to portray themselves as really scary and really dark and really happy and and ready to kill somebody and
1: in general they didn't want to fight they were in it much more for the money
0: they did not want to fight they didn't want pirates to get injured they had social insurance schemes that guaranteed that a pirate would get paid whether he got hurt and if he could could never work again then he was guaranteed to be able to be part of the pirate company for the rest of his life if a pirate died and had a family that family would get paid and this varied from ship to ship generally they had these things enacted and they didn't want their pirates to get hurt and to make sense to them
1: so a place that had pirates in the modern world until very recently was Somali which had pirates until 2012 and they were organized a bit differently to golden age pirates weren't they?
0: piracy in Somalia first arose in the early 90s, and it arose as a result of foreign trawlers who were illegally taking the country's fishing stock. The government collapsed in 1991. As a result of that, the Navy and coastal police wasn't able to repel this illegal fishing. So what a lot of these ex-fishermen did was they turned to piracy. They, They noticed that the ships that were crossing their shores could be attacked, and they started levying a sort of invisible tax on them. So for a long time, this was Somali piracy. We spoke to one who actually said he started doing this in the 80s and, and, and in the late 80s. And for a long time, Somali piracy was a very lo-fi and opportunistic affair. You spot a ship close to shore and you attack it. And and you kind of do that by getting a few of your friends together or, or, or colleagues together and splitting the spoils we heard either equally or according to how much each person invested in the operation. But then this entrepreneur, or he was actually a civil servant at the time, he goes by the nickname Afwene, he's actually in prison in Belgium right now. He noticed what was happening in Portland, which is where Somali piracy originated, and he thought, this is pretty big, Like this has the potential to be a huge. Business venture, not just a small, informal, opportunistic kind of affair. So he started looking for investors with, quote, a very good business
1: idea. Where do you look for investors in piracy?
0: He went to his hometown, he's not from Portland, and he thought, look, there are commercial vessels, they're crossing Somalia's shores, actually much further away from Somalia's shores, so the Gulf of Aden, which forms part of the Suez Canal waterway and it links the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean. Uh, there's an opportunity to hijack these ships and hold them for ransom because they're extremely valuable. And he found investors and he founded something called Somali Marines and he recruited pirates from Portland many of them the original fishermen and he started training them on how to board a ship and sort of military style training is what the pirate told us. And they began using what they called mother ships so usually fishing dows in the middle of the ocean that they used as bases on the sea and that allowed them to go much further away from Somali shores and attack much bigger commercial
1: vessels. These are almost like aircraft carriers, but for boats.
0: Absolutely. And then suddenly what you had in the news was pirates capturing, for example, the MV Faina, which is the first hijacking that made it into the international press in a big way. And that commanded a ransom of three and a half million dollars. And the way that piracy started to work is a complete business is that once you capture a ship, they steered back to shore in an entire local economy rises up to service the ship and the pirates and its hostages. So they sell water and food and kat, which is a very popular narcotic, chewable plant. And I found that extremely interesting. The thought that hit me when I read this was, wow, we are not the only people who think about how to scale a business model. These guys are thinking about that kind of thing too. They're thinking about recruitment. They're thinking about how to inject meaning into what they do. So, for example, the birth of piracy was the ex-fisherman attacking these ships in a quite an opportunistic and, and, and lo fi and you could say unsophisticated way. And they were being genuine with their justification in that they are stealing our fishing stock, right? So that was their reason. And I spoke to a lot of experts, one in particular who said that he thinks that they were being very genuine in the justification. But that became untrue very, very quickly. Almost every fire that they- could speak to after that initial iteration of piracy, had no background in fishing. Certainly the silver servant who turned piracy into what we know it today had no background in fishing. Fishing is a marginal activity in Somalia. It's definitely looked down upon and fish isn't even a part of Somali diet. But every pirate that you will speak to, certainly everyone that we spoke to, when we asked them, why did you do it? Said the same thing. We are the protectors of our coast because they were stealing our fish and we were hungry. That's not true, but that shows how incredible the strength of that message has been and how it spread throughout all of the pirate clans that were working at the time. And we, in the formal economy, we always talk about why do we do things? Why do we work for this company? Why do we design and sell iPhones and iPads and MacBooks? We need the why, right? Everybody talks about, you know, I need to know what my motivation is. Well, pirates also needed the why and they developed the why and and they gave them a mission that stood beyond monetary gain, even though that was the ultimate goal.
1: You think they, they believed that they were defending Somalia?
0: I think that they believed in the use of that justification, in order to garner sympathy from the press and from authors and researchers. They definitely at the time, so the peak of piracy in 2012, they loved it when journalists spoke about them and reported on them because that meant that they could command higher ransom payments and they had a kind of a higher or a stronger hand in in negotiating those ransom payments.
1: Apparently they had their own PR departments, their own letterheads?
0: They had letterheads. Yeah, there was one letterhead that was found which said, congratulations, you've been captured by this pirate group. If you cooperate, everything will be fine, that kind of thing. Um, In our conversations with them, sure, they did mention the fish, but, you know, they tried to say, but I needed money and I would actually pirate again if I get out of prison and can't find a job. So the lack of opportunity for employment and the fact that they wanted a quick buck and seeing other pirates make a lot of money, they know that that's the reason.
1: You actually talked to former Somali pirates over Skype, as you do yes. um, these days with pirates. Who did you talk to? Where were they?
0: So they were in Hargeza prison. Hargeza is the capital city of Somaliland, which extricated himself from Somalia proper after the government collapse of the civil war in 1991. And... We were put in touch with a fixer in Somaliland who, after weeks and weeks of working, got access to about seven to ten pirates who were sitting in prison. We had about half an hour conversations with each of them. One of them in particular, we spoke to for about an hour and a half or so. And I would say it was very enlightening, of course. Uh, to hear firsthand accounts of what it was like to board ships and attack them and the guilt and the regret and the sadness that comes from that. But it was also really sad. So it was enlightening and sad. And I definitely felt privileged to be able to speak to them.
1: What sort of guilt did they feel?
0: One of the ones we spoke to for quite a long time, I sort of asked them what, what it was like. Because the only resource I have for what it was like to attack a ship as a pirate is the 18th century pirate literature. He said it was horrible he said it was horrible to see people crying, wondering whether they would live or die. And it was horrible when people on the commercial vessels would shoot back at them. And that really kind of makes you realize that the way in which Somali pirates have been spoken about, particularly by publications like The Economist or Reuters, who really want to talk about the catchy, sensational things, is that, sure, it is interesting that this is still happening, but it's also really dark and really sad. And a lot of people have suffered because of it. And a lot of pirates have died at sea from hunger or drowning and actually a lot of them because they eat and chew cut and drink on credit and use their phones on credit while they're out at sea a lot of them never get out of debt as well so it's not this cool thing and that really dispelled that myth in speaking to them
1: it sounds a bit like the internal structure of a drug gang
0: Yeah. It worked very much like a military operation and also just like a business operation. You know, these were companies and there were people outside of Somalia who were feeding information to the pirates and saying, this ship is coming through here. This is the location. Head out. And actually, one of them said in our conversations that they get paid even if they don't successfully capture the ship for ransom. So it's like being an employee.
1: Piracy ended in about 2012 and a lot of them died around that point.
0: Yeah. A lot of them died and a lot of them were arrested. And that combined with the fact that commercial vessels added armed guards is the reason why Somali piracy is just not a thing these days.
1: So a lot like the golden age it was a pretty short period of piracy. Were these young men?
0: Young unemployed men a lot of the reason why piracy exploded in Somalia is because you subtly had unemployed men from the army and the navy and and coastal police that the government couldn't pay. They were young, they were armed and they needed jobs.
1: The world is so interested or was so interested in Somali pirates. Do you think it was just the sense
0: I think that a lot of people are interested. We're very, very interested in it because they were interested in finding how to stop it. And there's a lot of incredible literature coming from think tanks and universities and a lot of really great academics who were working at that topic and found it interesting. But there were a lot of pieces that were very voyeuristic, I guess. Not to say that that's not good. It is still interesting. But those are the things that tend to get read instead of how is this affecting the country. But also how is it affecting Somalis?
1: Kira, thanks very much for coming in long distance.
0: No, that's fine.
1: If you like what Kira had to say about piracy and economics, and you'd like to hear her expand on that, you might want to Google Kira Mayo-Phillips and Alexa Clay and the Misfit Economy. If you like this podcast and you think someone you know might like it too, tell them they should check it out. There are links on our website at fbiradio.com slash not what you think. And there are a bunch of other great FBI podcasts as well. You can find them at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Want us to cover something we haven't yet? Send us an email via fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink. Not What You Think is produced by Samira Farah. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Keep listening for our next episode. If you liked Not What You Think, FBI does all sorts of other podcasts, including All the Best with Pip. Hey, I'm Pip, and I host our storytelling show, All the Best, with Michael Bryden. We do docos, features and fiction. Tune in to FBI Radio at 10.30am every Saturday or at allthebestradio.com and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.